If there is one complaint common to the people of God, it has to do with God's timing, specifically how long we must wait for him to act. This is the issue raised by the false teachers, as Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 4, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But I would argue that this is not merely an issue raised by unbelievers. We hear it from the people of God. We find it in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament. In Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And then in Habakkuk, the prophet asks, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? In the New Testament, we're told in Revelation 6, verse 9 and 10, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? I said last Sunday that if we were to assign a theme to verses 5, 6, and 7, which we say last week, it would be that God is the Lord of creation. He does things by his word. If we were to assign a theme to what we're going to look at today, verses 8, 9, and 10, it would be God is the Lord of time. I think we would all generally agree that God is the Lord of creation and we would hold we would hold as a people that it is by his word that he created the world, that he flooded the world and that one day he will judge the world again. I suspect that we might also agree that he is the Lord of time, but our experiences often call that into question. We begin to wonder if, in fact, that is the case. There are times, and I think we've all experienced it, when we marvel at God's timing, at how he brought people together, events together. Things just seem to happen, and we just marvel at it. We just wonder at what God has done. But there are other times when difficulties arise, and we cry out to God, and he does not answer, at least not in the way that we want, or in the time frame that we want. As Peter addresses the issue, he seeks to answer the false teachers regarding the matter of timing, specifically of the Lord's return. I think we would do well as God's people to consider the implications as God is the Lord of time in our own lives. We've seen in Second Peter that Peter has consistently made reference to two witnesses. In chapter 1, we have two sets of witnesses, the New Testament apostles, the Old Testament prophets, that is from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And then in chapter 3, the order is reversed, which we're much more comfortable with, the holy prophets and then your apostles. If you look at verse number 2 in chapter 3, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. In verses 8 through 10, this is the pattern that Peter will continue to follow. Old Testament prophets and then New Testament apostles. And he tells us two things. First of all, the Lord's promised patience. 
as demonstrated from the Old Testament, and then the Lord's promised return as demonstrated from the New Testament. In this passage, what Peter will do is first quote something, and then he will give the explanation of it. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 8, 9, and 10. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. First of all, from the Old Testament, the Lord's promised patience as it is demonstrated. The false teachers are wrong, Peter argues, because of their intentional amnesia. As he writes in verse number five, they deliberately forget. In contrast, you'll notice in verse number eight, Peter tells his readers, and that includes us, but do not forget this one thing. Just a side note, you'll notice he refers to them as dear friends as he did in verse number one. In this passage, he really seeks to pull them closer to himself and away from the false teachers. I would also remind you that Peter has addressed the matter of remembering earlier in his book. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, we saw that in the NIV, at least, we have three R's uh, that he wants to remind. I will always remind you of these things, verse 12. And then verse 13, to refresh your memory. It is right to refresh your memory. And then in verse number 15, he says, After my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So remind, refresh your memory, and remember. And again, this is in contrast to the false teacher's who deliberately forget. They do not want to remember, but believers are to be those who remember. The text from the Old Testament comes from Psalm 90. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. This is taken from Psalm 90, verse 4. A psalm, by the way, written by Moses. The title is A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And the verse reads, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. As Moses sees it, God sees time from a perspective that we do not have and with an intensity that we are not capable of. He can see the whole broad sweep of history in a moment, in a glance. And yet he can stretch out a day by his patience as he waits patiently. Just a side note, uh, sort of a digression. Whenever the Bible quotes the Bible, I think it is safe to assume, it is wise to assume, that the reader who is quoting from a passage wants the reader not just to think of those words, but to consider the context from which those words came. In Psalm 90, which we'll talk about now for a bit, we find five points made about the nature of God. First of all, he is an eternal God. In verse number two, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It is this perspective that allows him to see a millennium as a day. The false teachers scoff. They should have realized that this is the fundamental biblical view of God. And that although he deals with us within time, 
because the psalm opens, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. God himself is outside of time. Our lives, which from our perspective seem so long, in fact, are quite brief. Verse 10, the length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. This is an insufficient perspective from which to see things. But it is one that the false teachers have embraced. They think they see all things clearly, and they do not. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 9. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. We saw that there are three characteristics of their perspective, that they are nearsighted, they are blind, and they have amnesia. They are blind to the present, they are nearsighted to the future, but they are mindless or amnesiacs when it comes to the past. Here in chapter 3, he's talking about them being nearsighted with regard to the future. But in fact, they are also forgetful of the past. So God is an eternal God, Moses tells us. Secondly, he is a creating God. In verse number 2 of Psalm 90, you brought forth the earth and the world. We saw this last week. That in fact, to deny that God created the world by speaking the word allows them to deny that one day God will judge the world and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Moses tells us that God is a judging God. Tied to creation is judgment. You turn men back to dust, in verse number three, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. No doubt Moses is thinking of what he had written in Genesis chapter three. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is what God told Adam and Eve. But I don't think that Moses is thinking merely in terms of cause and effect. Because if you look at verses 7, 8, and 9 there in Psalm 90, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. God is a judging God who knows our sins. But then fourthly, he is a saving God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. That's how the psalm begins. And in the last verse, may the favor of our Lord, or of the Lord our God, rest upon us. So while in the middle we read of God's anger and his indignation and his wrath, we can, as does Moses, pray for God to show compassion, love, and favor. We should stop a moment and think. If we deny God's ability to judge, to speak the word of judgment, then we deny also the possibility of grace and mercy and favor. Why would he need to show grace? Why would he need to have mercy on us? It's only because of his judgment. So to deny one is not to allow for the other. And lastly, Moses tells us that God is a moral God. He will judge, but not arbitrarily. That is, he has not left us uh, without standards by which we are to live. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. How can I know what is right? How can I know what is wrong? How can I gain a heart of wisdom? Well, God has left us a standard. 
And when he judges us, it will not be arbitrarily. I remember some years ago, a friend of ours um, was staying in a halfway house. And one of the things I thought rather strange about this situation was they had a whole list of rules. But when you came in, they didn't tell you any of the rules. You only found out about them as you broke them. This is not how God deals with us or has dealt with us. He is a moral God. So this is what we can see. We say to Peter, okay, you quoted Psalm 90, so now we have it. Peter, what do you see in Psalm 90? So he follows the quotation with an explanation. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As many have experienced, there is a tendency to accuse God of being slow. Perhaps even being forgetful, but let's stick with the slow right now. God has clearly promised to judge the false teachers, but why has nothing happened to them? Why are they prospering? The answer lies in correctly understanding the psalm, that is Psalm 90. Take, for example, verse number three. You turn men back to dust. This, as I said, refers back to Genesis 3. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. But stop and think a moment. God told Adam, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. But we know that they ate from it, and at least on that day, they did not physically die. Yes, they did experience a whole host of separations. Uh, They were separated from God, from each other, within themselves. Adam is afraid from creation. There's ecological death. But the reality is they did not experience physical death on that day. And and why is that? Because God is merciful and he mercifully extended the possibility of salvation. Instead of dying on the day of our disobedience, which would be every day of our lives thus far, um, we find instead that God is patient. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. How are we supposed to view this in terms of God's mercy? Those are 70, 80 years of days which God could have killed us, every single one of them for our sin. But like with Adam and Eve, God was merciful and patient. We must not forget that it is for our benefit that God measures time on his time scale and not our own. There are times when we wish God would act more quickly in our lives or perhaps in the lives of others. And we forget that God knows what he's doing and that the extended time is, in fact, a time of mercy. We should not, as Paul tells the Romans, use this, if you wish, his patience as an excuse for doing what we please. Um, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? God's patience is, in fact, so that we would turn to him in repentance. God does care about sin, and he will judge sin. But how are we supposed to understand the second part of verse number 9? Because it almost seems, and some would see it as 
allowing that everyone, in fact, will be saved. I think verse number nine has to be understood as a whole. To whom is Peter writing? Who is the you? He is patient with you. Well, it's the believers. Thus, the, the verse continues not one, wanting that anyone, and I would say of you, should perish, but that every one of you should come to repentance. So, from the Old Testament, we see God's promise of patience. In verse number 10, we have, from the New Testament, the Lord's promised return, as demonstrated in the New Testament. He has given us from the, from the Old Testament, now we turn to the New. The first part of verse number 10 is the quote, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is not simply a quote from the Apostles, but takes into account the teachings of Jesus and what we hear from the apostles as well. In Matthew 24, verses 42 to 44, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day our Lord will, re- will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. He will come like a thief. It's a promise that John records in Revelation chapter 3 to the church in Sardis. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This promise is the, counter, uh, the counterbalance to the promise of patience. Yes, God is patient and God will be patient, but he will return. He will come. Both the patience and the return have been promised. There will come a day when God will say, no more. No more delay. And it will be the time of judgment. This will certainly come as a shock to the false teachers. They do not expect him. They're like the person who didn't know they were going to get broken into and therefore they were not ready. How foolish these false teachers are. Well, what does Peter see in this statement from the apostles? The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. I think in some ways Peter's explanation raises more questions than it does provide answers. In some ways, it might even seem ambiguous. That is, that Peter is being less than clear. I'm also convinced that a lot of people who read Second Peter and who read verse number 10 in particular miss the whole point of what Peter is talking about. The main point is the centrality of the word of God, not scripture as such, but that when God spoke, the world was created. God spoke and the world was flooded. And one day God will speak again and there will be judgment. This is what Peter is trying to convey. This is not, uh, I think, a passage about uh, the end of time. I think rather it is speaking of God's ability to judge. As he created, as he flooded the world, so he will judge. Generally speaking, when people look at this verse... They think that it refers to the end of time, when everything will be destroyed and then recreated. 
I don't think that's what Peter is saying. When we went through the book of Revelation, we saw that in chapter 6, the language of decreation is used to describe judgment. So when you read of a collapsing universe, it doesn't point to the end of the world, but in fact the end of an era or the end specifically of Judaism, the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And if this may seem strange to you, consider how do people describe uh, disasters in their lives or great traumas in their lives? People oftentimes say, my world was turned upside down. The world came crashing down around me. Remember reading someone say, cancer definitely turned my world upside down and brought it to a screeching halt. One could argue and say, no, your world has not been turned upside down. It didn't come to an end. Otherwise, why would you be writing what you just wrote? It is, in fact, a way of expressing a tremendous difficulty or a crisis that has come into our lives. A disastrous and catastrophic event. We might even be tempted to say when people do this, you're just being overly dramatic. But there are times, I think, when we use such cosmic language to describe times of joy as well, not just times of difficulty. Okay, but what about what Peter says here about the elements being destroyed by fire, melting in the heat? Some have taken a literal approach and argue that in scientific terms, Peter's talking about atoms being destroyed. Thus, some in the nuclear age see this as a scientific description of the end of the world. I don't think that's what he's doing. Some have wondered if, in fact, because Peter's pre-modern, so he doesn't know about science, that he's using the language of his time to speak of the four elements of fire, earth, air, and water. And that one of the four, that is fire, is used to destroy the other three. I think for us to understand what is undoubtedly a difficult passage, we need to ask ourselves, this word elements, is it used anywhere else in the New Testament? And if it is, how is it used? It is, in fact, used several times in the New Testament, and never is it used in connection with the physical universe. Rather, it is used consistently with regard to the things of the Old Covenant, the way that things were before Jesus came into the world. So that what Peter is describing here is the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, the order of things that which the false teachers are advocating. Thus, the destruction of the heavens and the elements melting in the heat and the earth being laid bare doesn't point to the end of all things, but to judgment. And these false teachers will, in fact, be judged in a way that is so catastrophic and so cataclysmic that we would describe it in such cosmic terms. Stop and think a minute. The temple in Jerusalem represented the presence of God, and that which represented the presence of God was completely destroyed. It was seen as a cosmic event. But the Lord willing, we will see next week, because Peter doesn't stop there. If you look at verse number 13, but in keeping with his promise, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And what Peter means by this, the Lord willing, we will see next Sunday. I think what Peter wants in verses 8, 9, and 10 
He wants us to know and to remember that the Bible starts and finishes with a God who created the heavens and the earth and who will one day create a new heaven and a new earth. And he does it by his word. What does this passage, or what should this passage say to us today? Before we leave, I would like you to take this with you as you go. I would have you consider two lines of thought. The first is regarding God's calendar. What type of calendar does God keep? Peter describes God's view of time, or his calendar, based on Psalm 90, verse 4. And in doing so, I think we see the following. That first of all, God's calendar is not of this world. If you wish, we can call it a heavenly calendar. God views things, his calendar is outside ours. God doesn't simply do things by our time, though he lives within our time. He's also outside of our time. We see time as a series of sequence of events. Snapshots, if you wish, that when you put them all together, you see a type of motion. God sees it all at once. Something that we cannot comprehend, but he sees it all at once. And so his calendar is not like ours. Secondly, God's calendar is a moral calendar. We may, not want, we may wonder why God doesn't hurry up and bring final justice. In a world of cruelty, why, God, why doesn't God do something about it? This is not indifference on his part. God's justice is perfect. It is precise and it is merciful. God will bring justice when it is morally just to do so. And he alone knows when that time is. I'm reminded of the passage in 1 John about the sin unto death. And John says we are not to pray about that. that that's God's business. I don't know. There have been times, I must confess, when I was convinced it would be better if a certain individual would die. That it, it, it would sort of make things a lot simpler for everybody else. That's not my call. We have calendars all over our house. But you know what? If I'm a good person on Sunday, it doesn't change the calendar. If I'm a bad person on Monday, it doesn't change the calendar. It's still Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But God has a moral calendar by which he governs the world. Thirdly, his calendar is an evangelistic calendar. God guides all human history as salvation history. It's about redemption. It's about redeeming his creation. And this has been made possible through what Jesus has done. Let me read to you something that J.I. Packer has written about this. Does not the existence of evil, this moral badness, useless pain and waste of good, suggest that God the Father is not almighty after all? For surely he would remove these things if he could. Yes, he would. And he is doing so. Through Christ, bad folk like you and me are already being made good. New pain-free bodies are on the way and a reconstructed cosmos with them. 
If God moves more slowly than we wish in clearing evil out of his world and introducing the new order, that, we may be sure, is in order to widen his gracious purpose and include more victims of the world's evil than otherwise he could have done. We might prefer that Jesus come back now, today. But in fact, if he delays, it allows for the possibility that someone else may come to faith in Christ. It is an evangelistic calendar. And lastly, it is a creation calendar. In our passage, we hear words like disappear, destroyed, laid bare. But in what we will see, the Lord willing, next Sunday, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. God speaks and creates. His calendar is a creating one. And to be honest, if I could just stop here, I don't think that we think that way. I think we're much more comfortable with the notion that God is up there ready to zap us when we do something wrong. And that God, as a God of loving creation, I think we pay lip service to that, but when we look at the calendar, I don't think we think creation. I think we think primarily judgment, and that is unfortunate. So that's the first thing I would have you take as we leave here, is God's calendar. The second thing is, how are we supposed to live? I mentioned something a couple Sundays ago, and then later reproached myself, rather severely, for several days after that, because I did not explain what I meant. And I I hate when preachers do that, when they say, this is what you need to do, and it's like, fine, how do I do that? I said that our perspective is to be shaped by the coming of Jesus, that is the beginning, and the return of Jesus, that is the ending. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Our perspective of reality and time is to be governed by this. That is, we have a beginning point and an ending point. It's not simply an infinite line. There is a beginning point and an ending point. We live between the two comings, the two parousias, the word in Greek. We've talked about this before. It has two meanings. One is the coming of a hidden divinity who makes himself known by a revelation of his power. We would say this is the incarnation. The second meaning of the word is the official term for a visit of a person of high rank, usually a king or an emperor. This is when our king will return. This is the second parousia. We live in between this. And I said, that's how we're supposed to live. But I failed to explain how we're to do that. What Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, I find so helpful here. In verses 28, 9, 30, and 31, he writes, For what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed to them. For this world in its present form is passing away. An opinion generally held by people is that Paul is speaking as though the end of time is near. I would argue that this is simply not the case. Uh, Paul doesn't mention the second coming at all in this passage or, or the end of time. What he does say is the time is short or limited or compressed. And we've talked about this before and I've asked the question, 
Is there anything that can shorten or compress time? At least our perception of time. And the answer is yes. A beginning point and an ending point. You see, if there is no ending point in sight, if there is going to be no end, then how can you say time is short? But the fact is, there is a point in the future. We don't know where it is, but it is there. And therefore, we have a reference point in the future by which we are to govern our actions, and we have one behind us, the coming of Jesus. And these two points give us a frame of reference by which we are to live our lives. And so Paul says, if you have a wife, you should live as if you had none. If you mourn as though you were not mourning, if you were happy as though you weren't happy, if you bought something as though it wasn't yours, if you use the things of the world as if you're not engrossed in them, and the reason is, he said, the world in its present form is passing away. The new perspective that Paul calls for and that I suggested to you is illustrated by these five examples, five as-ifs, which if we take them literally are absurd. And they actually contradict almost everything that Paul has ever written. Paul is not saying that we should be detached, that we should be escapists in our view of the gospel, but rather we should be free of the control of this world. So what he mentions, marriage is not wrong. Mourning is not mourned. To be happy is not wrong. To buy something, that's not wrong. And to use the things of this world, that is not wrong. Paul wants the Corinthians to keep doing these things. There are those in the church in Corinth who think these things are wrong. They think marriage is wrong because we're angels and angels don't get married. And, and Paul's like, no. We are to do these things, but these things are not to determine our lives. They are not to define us as human beings. I want to be careful what I say here because my wife and I just celebrated our 18th anniversary last Tuesday. But in terms of eternity, that does not define either one of us. We are the people of God. What are we, so how are we supposed to view our marriage? That it's nothing? No. It is a place where God has put us and there we are to be faithful. We are to be obedient. But that's not to be what ultimately defines us. What defines us is we are the people of God. We're living in between the incarnation and the return of Jesus. And one day, when he returns, we will spend eternity with him. That is what is supposed to define us. Is it appropriate that we mourn? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that is not to define us. That is not to determine how we live our lives. Are we to be happy? Absolutely. But even happiness does not define us, or it should not. And there are times when people you know, seem very, very concerned. Are you happy? And you know, if, you're, if you're less than enthusiastic in your response, you're like, well, I'm kind of worried about you. Um, there, there's a time to mourn. There's a time to be happy. But neither one determines our lives, and neither one defines us. We may be tempted to cry out with the psalmist or with the prophet Habakkuk or with the martyrs under the altar. How long, O Lord? We know Jesus came and we know that one day he will return, but how long is this going to take? 
we should not lose sight by God's grace that he is not only the Lord of creation, he is the Lord of time. And above all, we should remember that God keeps his promises. It's been almost 2,000 years. The clock is ticking. What's the deal? Or perhaps even in a smaller frame when we see people do wicked things and we wonder, why doesn't God do something? God keeps his promises. He is not slow. By our clocks he may be, but God has his own calendar and he will do what is best when it is best. Let's pray together. Father, if we would be honest, there are times when we wonder if you know what you're doing. And in our, in our anxiety, and perhaps in our arrogance, we think we could do a better job. We certainly, would, certainly wouldn't allow things to happen that are happening in the world. I just wonder, when are you going to do something about this? When are you going to make things right? I thank you for what Peter writes how he looks back to the Old Covenant and to the New Covenant as well. And here we see the promise of your patience, how patient you are indeed, and the promise of your return. Help us by your grace not to try to chain you to our calendars, which is hard because we have deadlines There are specific dates on which specific things are supposed to happen. Sometimes we feel like we need to remind you. But you know what is best. You have your own calendar. And in your great grace and mercy, you have saved us by your your calendar, in, in line with your calendar. How patient you are with us. And may we see that we are to live between the two parousias, the two comings. When Jesus came into the world many years ago, that one day he, in fact, will return. By your grace, may we take these things to heart. May we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Speaking of calendars, we give thanks for birthdays and anniversaries. We thank you for giving Jack another year and ask that you would continue to watch over him as he grows up. Guide him and give him wisdom. Now we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen. Thank you.